Hi, Greg Perry, the historic preservationist. Uh, tonight's episode is going to uh, circle and circumvent Benjamin Franklin, the setting sun. The sun which Franklin observed on the painting at Independence Hall may be symbolized a new day for America, but it represented a setting sun for Franklin himself. His public life had now virtually come to an end. Even though his conduct in the convention had gained him much credit with inside the doors, and he had been re-elected president of Pennsylvania, he realized that henceforth he would be more of a figurehead than a dynamic leader. Physically, Franklin's participation in the convention had been a last burst of energy, which carried over for the rest of his year. His friends attributed his more vigorous appearance to the daily exercise of going and returning from the State House. But early in January 1788, he sprained his wrist and right arm up to the shoulder by a fall on the stone steps leading into his garden. For a time, writing became extremely difficult, and he never again recovered his full strength. At the time of his fall, Franklin's scurvy, or malady, and as bad as it has ever been in the past, though it practically, practically disappeared a few months later concurrently with an acute swelling which came upon him as a consequence of a new seizure of gout. Franklin wondered whether there could be any connection between the appearance of one malady or the decline of the other. By June of 1789, the pain of the stone had become so extreme that he was forced to take opium to relieve it. The drug gave him temporary ease, but took away his appetite and interfered with his digestion. In September, he described himself as totally incapable, with little remaining but a skeleton cover with the skin. He completely abandoned the faith in any remedy for the stone, but has established himself in the palatating system, which made life at least tolerable. Even though he had spent the last two years in excruciating pain, he was pleased to have lived through them to see the origin of the new government of the United States. On one occasion, when he was particularly exhausted by pain, James Madison, paying him a visit, expressed hope that he was using opium as sparingly as possible, since frequent doses would undermine his constitutional strength. Franklin replied that he was well aware of the deleterious effects of opium, but he had no other remedy in sight, and thought best terms he could make with his complaint was to give up a part of his remaining life for the greater ease of the rest. In July 1788, Franklin, Franklin completed his will, adding a, an addition to the following year. He identified himself as first as a printer, then as a former minister to the country of France, and last as incumbent president of Pennsylvania. By and large, he listed his bequest in conventional order according to the consanguinity rather than the degree of affliction in which he held his legators. 
His son William, therefore, headed the list, but his legacy was modest, comprising all of Franklin's books and papers already in his possession. All his outstanding debts to his father and all his father's claims to land in Nova Scotia, the last very tenuous properties indeed. As a final display of displeasure toward his son, Franklin announced that the part he acted against me in the late war, which is a public notoriety, will account for my leaving him no more than an estate he endeavored to, to deprive me of. All was not forgiven. Despite Franklin's precept to forbear resenting injuries so much as you think they deserve. To his daughter Sarah and her husband, Franklin left nearly all his real and personal property in Pennsylvania, together with Louis XVI's miniature set with its 408 diamonds. Characteristically, Franklin requested that his daughter would not form any of these diamonds into ornaments either for herself or her daughters and thereby introduce or continence the expensive vein and useless fashion of wearing jewels in this country. And those immediately connected with a picture may be preserved with the same. Perhaps Sally's strain of worldliness explains why Franklin seems never to have lavished the same affection upon her as some of his other relations. As though to vindicate her father as a prophet, Sally promptly sold all of the jewels after his death, except those immediately connected with the picture, and set off for Europe with her husband in 1792. Realizing that his sister Jane would not be likely to survive him very long, Franklin left her only the house she occupied in Boston, as well as 50 pounds a year for life. To William Temple, he left 3,000 acres of land, which had been granted by the state of Georgia, as well as the bond representing the money Franklin had lent him in Southampton, England. To Benny Bache, whose future was already assured by the bequest of his parents, Franklin left all of his types and printing materials in Philadelphia, worth nearly 1,000 pounds. Finally, Franklin requested that his body be buried as, as, as little expense or crematory as may be possible, whichever is cheaper. This last is not necessarily a reflection of the poor Richard philosophy of thrift, but an expression of modesty and simplicity not usual at the time. In the will, Franklin repeated his fixed political opinion that in a democratical state, there ought to be no offices of profit as a prologue to describing his project to turn over his salary as president of Pennsylvania to develop endowment funds for the cities of Boston and Philadelphia. The accumulated salaries were to be lent out at interest to young beginners in business, and after the passing of a century, the accumulated profits were to be spent in public works. Franklin attributed this scheme to the reading in France of a tract on the virtue of saving, 
La Testament de Fortune by Richard C.J. Maton de la Cour. And he had written to the author on the 18th of November, 1785, acknowledging the hint. The French work was in itself an imitation of the way to wealth. And to both France and England, it was thought to be from Franklin's pen. Before leaving France, Franklin had written to Vaughan, disclaiming authorship as well as to Price, describing it as vigorous and a pleasant illustration of Price's doctrine. Of the immense power of compound interest, projects that may be absurd in a man to undertake for himself, he remarked to Vaughan, may nevertheless be wise in states, they being long-lived animals. After filing his will, Franklin made the final attempt to obtain compensation from Congress for his expenses in his time in France. Three years after submitting his accounts, he still had not been paid or only paid a bare salary. To make matters worse, some unfriendly newspapers were insinuating that he was indebted to the government for large sums of money, and to Congress, and in Congress itself, whispers were heard associating him with the lost million of Rochambeau. To stir the memories and consciousness of the members of Congress, Franklin hopefully submitted a sketch of the services of B. Franklin to the United States of America. Here he summarized his duties as colonial agent in London, his journalistic propaganda at the time, his encouragement of the revolution, his official journeys to Boston in 1775 and to Canada in 1776, and most important, his services in France beyond the duties of commissioner. He had served as counsel, as judge of admiralty, as merchant, as his own secretary, and most fatiguing of all, as controller for the entire European financial operation. As, com- as during this confining business for eight years, he was deprived of his annual vacation trips for exercise, a deprivation to which he attributed his stone and gout. Aware that Arthur Lee and John Jay had both been rewarded great with appointments on their return from Europe, he informed Charles Thompson on December 29, 1788, of his expectation that Congress would at least grant him some tract of Western land. The only favor he had been officially asked of Congress was the appointment of William Temple Franklin as Secretary of the Commission for Treaties, and this had been refused. Despite the flag waving on Franklin's return to the United States, Congress certainly had not been unduly appreciative. But since Arthur Lee was a member of the Treasury Board and his brother, Richard Henry Lee, a member of Congress, perhaps nothing more could have been expected. Thinking about his will probably reopened the wound caused by Franklin's separation from his son. For at the time, he was making it out to be congratulated by an old Boston friend and fellow punster, Mather Biles, only a few months younger than Franklin himself, on having a daughter at hand to care for him with his final attention. Franklin had only a few words of praise for his own daughter. The comfort of my declining years, 
but many bitter ones about his son, who was strange for me by the part he took in the late war. He keeps aloof, residing in England, not here in America, whose cause he espoused, whereby the old proverb is exemplified. My son is my son, till he take him a wife, but my daughter's my daughter all days of her life. Rarely did Franklin evince the same affection for his daughter that he had shown for his grandsons in France, or for his infant son Francis, who passed on. As his warmest tribute to Sally in the year before her death, he could remark merely, I have seven promising grandchildren by my daughter, who play with and amuse me, and she is a kind, attentive nurse to me when I am at my most indisposed. In the last year of his life, he encouraged his little granddaughter to study her lessons at his bedside, sitting on a stool and writing out her words to learn spelling. He made her look in the dictionary for the meaning of all the words she did not know. And when her her attention lagged, he would say, Debbie, it's not that line of spelling ready yet. When she was diligent, he rewarded her with a spoonful of a fruit jelly, which he kept consistently at the bedside for the relief of the stone. Franklin's still concerned about his harmony in his family and was particularly anxious that his sister Jane keep on good relations with Jonathan Williams, their nephew, and Jonathan Williams Jr., their grandnephew. If anything was amiss in their relations, he admonished his sister. On August 3rd of 1789, I should have concluded that it was your fault, for I thank our family were always subject to being my little Muffy. Franklin added a little family homily concerning some of the Nantucket Folgers, who he had invited to dine in the preceding year when they were visiting Philadelphia. Their answer was that they would, if they could, do better. Franklin supposed that they do did better, and he wrote to Jane, for I never saw them afterwards, and so had no opportunity of showing my myth if I had one. Franklin felt consistently compelled to impress an optimistic philosophy upon his sister, especially in regard to the death which both were soon to face. It may not be amiss to allow ourselves beforehand the enjoyment of some expected pleasure, the expectation being often the greatest part of it, he wrote on the 31st of May, 1788. But it is not so well to afflict ourselves with apprehensions of misfortunes that may never arise. A year later, after hearing that Jane had suffered tearful apprehension concerning his health, Franklin gently rebuked her. There are, in life, real evils enough, and it is time enough when the real ones arrive. In a similar vein, he told his stepson that, In the comfortable intervals between his attacks of pain, he still amused himself as he had as a man of 50, reading or writing or in conversion with friends, joking, laughing, and telling merry stories. Probably Franklin considered as his most important activity during these days the continuation of his memoirs, which he had been forced to delay for the 
extravagancy of another everlasting bout of gouts in 1771. Although in February of 1778, he suggested to Lee Villard that he would be unable to resume work until he gave up the presidency in the fall. He actually took up his pen after completing his will by the 24th of October, had brought the story down to his 15th year, and he expected to complete it in a few months. The section covering his life after 1756, he told La Rochambeau, the 22nd of October would cover more important transactions than the previous personal history. But he still felt that the earlier part would be of more general use to young readers. As exemplifying strongly the effects of prudent and imprudent contact, conduct in the commencement of a life in business. He had, in the interest of brevity, he told Benjamin Vaughan, the 24th of October, omitted all details not having a tendency to benefit the young reader. By showing him from my example and my success in emerging from poverty and acquiring some degree of wealth, power, and reputation, the advantages of certain modes of conduct which I observed and of avoiding the errors which were prejudicial to me in life. In December, when he had finally retired from all branches of public service and begun to feel a free man, he reported to the Abbe Morlay that the calling past transactions to remembrance in the writing of his life gave him the feelings of living his life over and over again. It is to be noted that Franklin did not carry out his earlier thought of turning the last part of his autobiography into a vindication of his public career or to use it as a device for gratifying his vanity. On the 3rd of June, 1789, he told Benjamin Vaughn that he found it a difficult task to speak decently and properly of one's own conduct. And he felt the need of a judicious friend to encourage me in stretching out. He even wondered whether it would be proper to publish his memoirs during his lifetime. In June, he finally sent copies of his manuscript to the three Europe, European friends who had exhorted him to the task, Vaughan, Lovelard, and Le Rochambeau, admitting that he had made no progress in the past six months. In his letter to Vaughan, he gave advice on literary composition particularly on, on methodology. Paradoxically, the one quality which, in his memoirs, he had accused himself of lacking in his own style. Although Franklin deliberately kept from turning his memoirs into an apology in any sense, he subsequently wrote a long narrative, Observations Relative to the Intentions of the Original Founders of the Academy of Philadelphia which he be interpreted as self-vindication and could be very well have fitted into his autobiography. Bearing the date, June 1789, the work vindicated the philosophy of vernacular instruction in the English school. The educational philosophy which William Smith had ruthlessly defied during his control of the academy. Because of Smith, Franklin had bitterly complained to Kindersley, in 1759, that the trustees had privately decided all of the policies of the academy without his knowledge or participation. 
now 30 years later, after the Academy had evolved into the University of Pennsylvania, after the wrecker William Smith had been dismissed because of his Tory war record, and after all the original trustees except Franklin were dead, he suddenly took up the battle once more. It is a mystery, never before even commented upon, that Franklin should take time to write, his, write about his apparent dis, defunct issue at the very moment when his friends were imploring him to carry on his autobiography to encompass the great transactions on the latter part of his life. His observations represent not only a statement of Franklin's personal recollections, but a systematic search into the minutes of the academy during the period which he had been out of the country. In other words, he had undertaken a laborious job of historical research, but the question is why. Could it be that Franklin realized that William Smith was attempting to regain his prestige as an educator and political leader, and that Franklin took his final method to discredit his old enemy? Smith is not once mentioned by name in the observations. Although anyone familiar with the background of the academy would have understood that he was being attacked by Franklin's charge that the history of the institution revealed a constant dis disposition to dis depress the English school in favor of the Latin. Yet on the surface, Franklin was writing merely to reinvigorate English instruction and to discredit Latin and Greek as useless adornments in America. It is true that, in the summer of 1789, some alternations in the system of education pursued in the English school at the college were under consideration, and Franklin may have had no other motive than to communicate his experience and opinions. In his paper, he assumed a degree of blame for having too easily submitted to the deviations from the Constitution and not opposing them with sufficient zeal and eagerness and characterized his observations as an attempt to make amends by bearing testimony against those deviations. Yet certain background develops, developments at the University of Pennsylvania indicate that more was at stake than a debate over educational philosophy. In 1779, the old College of Pennsylvania, the descendant of Franklin's original academy, because of the Toryism of Smith and most of its trustees have been converted by the act of legislature into the University of Pennsylvania with John Ewing, a Presbyterian, replacing the disgraced Smith and control being removed from the Anglican Church. In September of 1784, the former trustees of the College of Philadelphia launched a movement to have its charter restored under their control. And in March of 1789, the legislature acceded to their wishes. Smith, ever since 1782, had been on the eastern shore of Maryland, serving as president of the newly created Washington College. In July of 1789, the month after Franklin's observations, he returned from exile to become once more provost of the university. It would seem quite plausible that Franklin had heard of Smith's imminent return and that he wrote his narrative either to, be, to, to head off his reappointment as provost or at least to reduce his prestige to a degree. 
Despite the resumption of formal relations between Franklin and Smith early in the Revolution, Franklin's scrutiny of Academy records would have been enough to reawaken Smith's consuming hatred. We shall see that it all existed after Franklin's death. Although Franklin had retired from the political arena, he still had a keen interest in the exciting events taking place in America and France. We are making experiments in political tricks, he told La Rochambeau approvingly, weighing the certainty of experimental knowledge against the dubiousness of theoretical, although may have some doubts concerning the risk involving the obtaining of it. We remember that it had been it had been taken Franklin's policy throughout his own political career to take advantage of situations as they arose rather to attempt to enforce theoretical schemes. Reporting the gradual ratification of the Constitution to Dupont de Nemours, June 9, 1788, he observed that we must not expect that a new government may be formed, as a game of chess may be played by a skillful hand without a fault. The political game is based on chance rather than reason, or as Franklin put it, the play is more like trick-track with the box of dice. For almost the first time in his adult life, Franklin now found himself remote from the printing world, the object of newspaper propaganda rather than an important force behind it. This may be the reason why, of the half-dozen pieces he wrote after the Constitutional Convention, two of them concerned abuses of the liberty of the press, personal accusation, detraction, and calamity, abuses of which Franklin himself had certainly been victim of. One of his pieces, addressed to the Pennsylvania Gazette, complained its editors on a 50-year history of chaste conduct during which scarce one libaceous peace had ever appeared in it. Here Franklin went a little too far in self-condemnation, for during this period of his editorship there had appeared many malicious pieces of personal accusation, although none from his own pen. The general impression now created by the press, he charged, is that Pennsylvania is peopled by a set of the most unprincipled, wicked, radical, and quarrelsome scoundrels upon the face of our globe. The great inconsistency in all of this, according to Franklin, was the abrupt change in public attitude as soon as the public figure died. Thou living, you give one another the characters of devils. Dead, you are all angels. Pennsylvania was a good country to die in, though a bad one to live in. Probably Franklin wrote this piece partially in retaliation to his own detractors. In September of 1789, Franklin addressed to the Federal Gazette a sardonic description of the supremest court of judiciary in Pennsylvania versus the court of the press condemning the reckless exercise of the journalistic power to judge, sentence, and condemn to infamy. Not only private individuals, but public bodies, with or without inquiry or hearing. The only check he advocated for the power of the press or defense against abuse of its 
privileged position was liberty of the kudal, or physical retaliation, a remedy rather out of harmony with the Enlightenment philosophy of most of Franklin's pronouncements on public relations. His caution against the press should not be interpreted as a conservative strength in his thought. However, any more than a series of remarks on the Pennsylvania Constitution written a few weeks later, in which he expressed the hope that our representatives in the convention will not hastily go into these innovations, but take the advice of the prophet, stand in the old ways, view the ancient paths, consider them well, and be not among those that are given to change. Those who quote this advice as an example on Franklin's distrust of new and dangerous theories, quote it out of context, for it follows the most democratic statement Franklin has ever made. A criticism of a proposal to establish property as a qualification for choosing members of one of the houses of the legislature, arrogantly denominated upper. The, this conception Franklin branded as a unwelcome disposition among some of our people to commence its aristocracy by giving the rich a predominance in its government. Although Franklin's last public statements were critical of slavery, abolition sentiments in his career were never important. He took no stand whatsoever against slavery until relatively late in his life, and he never became a passionate opponent of the system. But he was president of the Pennsylvania Society promoting the abolition of slavery, which presented over his signature a memorial to the House of Representatives on February 12th of 1789. This was Franklin's last public act. Also, he signed a statement of the Society on the 9th of November, 1789, appealing for financial and moral support. Finally, he sent to the editor of the Federal Gazette, a paper dated March 23rd, 1790, only 24 days before his death, ridiculing a speech in favor of the slave trade delivered in the House by James Jackson of Georgia. In the same month, Franklin answered a direct question by the Reverend Ezra Stiles concerning his religious sentiments and his opinion of Jesus of Nazareth. Knowing that a statement would be given to the world, Franklin indicated that he believed that the soul of man is immortal and will be treated with justice in another life, respecting its conduct in this one. As to Jesus, he had doubts about his divinity, but thought his system of morals and religion the best the world has ever saw 